0: Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for leading us in that time of worship. Uh, Just a a really sweet way to um, transition into the sermon on a heavy topic, but I think an important one for us. Uh, Good morning, everyone, again. Thank you for joining us. Um, For those of you that are joining now, my name is Jonathan Demers, and I'm honored to serve as an elder here at Mack Avenue Community Church. Uh, I'm one of five elders here, Pastor Leon, who often preaches for us, uh, as we mentioned earlier this morning, uh, he's away on his annual one-month sabbatical, and we're thrilled for him and his family to get some rest and excited uh, to see how God works in our church uh, during this month. As Mike mentioned, we are continuing our sermon series. Uh, the series is called Psalms, the Soundtrack of a Godly Life, but this morning's sermon is the second in a two-part mini-series on the Lament Psalms. I had the privilege of preaching the first sermon back in May, when we focused on the what and why of lament, Uh, and today we're going to focus on the how of lament. As you'll see, I'll be using PowerPoints uh, and slides regularly today, and uh, later on our website, I will make available a full copy of my manuscript, so if you prefer to just sit back and listen rather than try to multitask, know that these resources will be available on the church's website this afternoon. As it was two months ago, lament remains an incredibly heavy topic. Even as we all continue to confront the twin cruelties of racism and the coronavirus, uh, we have seen death affect our community in many other ways. I'm thinking of Ladesia, Herb and Vershawn's daughter. Uh, this Wednesday, we celebrated her arrival into God's presence, even as we grieved her senseless death at the end of a gun. As a young dad myself, uh, tears came often while I watched the service, no parent should have to bury their own child. Uh, and i'm I'm grateful that Pastor Leon was there um, to provide a consoling presence and a word of hope. I'm also thinking of a young man named Isaac or cornbread, as many of us knew him by. He was a regular at the Commons even before the building became known by that name. Uh, cornbread was often found on beals, cruising on his bike, flashing his bright smile, often a bit intoxicated. Um, I remember, gently guiding him to a seat after he crashed a Macleod community dinner many years ago. Um, and despite being a little loopy and loud, he enjoyed our potluck dinner. Um, unfortunately, though, two weeks ago, he was found dead unexpectedly. His life mattered. And for all the trouble that he caused and all the trouble that he suffered, the commons was built for him. And thanks to Edith, we celebrated his life with a block party Friday and While he may not have had a photo hanging from our walls, that building was built to keep his memory and the memory of others like him. And we will keep his memory um, as long as we continue to honor him um, together. I'm also thinking of our sister, Carolyn Davis, whose childhood home was deliberately firebombed two weeks ago. While nobody was hurt, a family's home was almost destroyed. And I know that when I first learned of this tragedy, I was able to pray with several of you on the 48214 care team. We were able to just sit and lament the loss of that home. We spoke of the love that was sown there like a seed. We spoke of childhood memories that were made there, the dreams that were born there, the celebrations that have happened there. We spoke of the creaky doors, the nooks, the crannies, and we grieved how that was all nearly vaporized in an act of Selfish violence. And as we did that, we welcomed God into our prayers and griefs. And we did that because God laments alongside us. Grief can be a a dark place, it's a place of pain and doubt and anger, but it does not have to be a lonely place. Our God joins us in it. The Bible says He tabernacles among us. And my prayer is that when confronted with sin, whether it's in ourselves, in our community, or in our broken world, we would reject our instinct to withdraw from that brokenness, to withhold our honest feelings from God so that we can present a polished and pristine image to him, and that we would instead embrace God, confront him, weep before him, so that he, through our lament, can transform us into a humble and empathetic people who are eager to trade our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. I've organized today's sermon into three parts. Rewind, Relearn, and Retell. And as we progress through the sermon and discover what I think are some helpful guideposts to practicing lament in the Psalms, we're going to set some time aside in the sermon to give our own laments together and begin to practice what we're preaching. Our primary passage today will be Psalm 88, and I invite you to turn there now uh, and listen as I read verses 1 and 2, as well as verses 18. The psalmist says, O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cries. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Please join me before the Father. O oh God, Creator, man of sorrows acquainted with grief, you who weep with us and groan within us, we come to you now and we come confidently. Knowing that we can draw near to you, our great high priest, empathetic with our weaknesses, open our eyes to the forgotten practice of lament. Help us to learn how to navigate the depths of these dark waters, the valley of the shadow of death, the wildernesses that we will inevitably face, and teach us that honest grief before you is the better way. Give us the courage to sit with our questions. Grace us with the humility to see lament and the confession and repentance that often follow, as medicine that's good for our souls. Weep with us, Lord. Walk alongside us. Be our counselor and keeper, refuge and redeemer. Amen. So before we dive into really the heart of today's message, uh, I want to revisit the first sermon that I gave on lament. In that sermon, uh, we focused on the scriptural basis for lament by asking two main questions. First, what is lament? And second, why do we lament? So let's start with that first question What exactly is lament? Despite what I think many of us have been taught, Christian lament is woven all throughout the tapestry of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. We know that approximately one third of the Psalms are considered laments, that David, the author of many Psalms and a king described as a man after God's own heart, laments the loss of his friend Jonathan, his, per- his uh, friend Jonathan, his persecutor Saul. And the death of his own sons. The Old Testament prophets routinely cry out to God over the collective failures and sin of Israel. And the Book of Lamentations is itself really just one long lament of injustice and sin. But it is not only God's people who lament, God himself laments with us. We see the Father not only lament his creation's disloyalty, but also its bondage to sin and death. The Holy Spirit groans in anguish within us and on our behalf interceding for our weaknesses, and Jesus himself, when confronted by the tears of his friends Mary and Martha, wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. The scriptures portray Jesus as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus laments the prodigal city Jerusalem and longs to gather his people to himself like a mother hen. Christians like to think of God as as being above all that, but that's just simply not the portrait that the Bible paints. And because our God weeps with us, for us, and alongside us, we can collapse into his waiting arms, knowing that we can draw near, receive mercy, and find grace in our times of need, as the author of Hebrews says. So as we can see, this picture of biblical lament is deeply rooted in the character of God, and it is certainly more robust than what our common dictionary might define it as. So last time, I tried to define Christian lament in a specific way. Lament is a prayerful expression of anguish and hope that softens our callous hearts and steadies our shaken souls. It's a stubborn insistence that things cannot remain this way, a holy anger that is put to speech, and a grief that produces within us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is to our pain what thanksgiving is to our joy. Defined this way, we can begin to see lament for what it truly is. It's not a sign of weakness— Lament is a righteous and treasured practice of God's people that reflect his, his own character. It's not always orderly and pristine. It involves tears. Lament often looks more like a kid wailing and flailing around, demanding for his parents' attention and relief. And it's not eager for tidy solutions. Lament guides us away from insensitive and cliched responses to sin's cruel grip on the world. And rather than leading us to recoil from pain, Lament teaches us to welcome grief like a teacher and a friend. Now, this doesn't mean we should elevate pain for its own sake. What it means is we should see our grief and our response to pain as a pathway to intimacy with God, not something we have to fear. And so that leads to the second question from last time, why do we lament? Why is it, and what is it specifically, that God's people are trying to draw their attention to and confront For the Christian, lament leads us to better recognize and participate in the supernatural conflict that's at the heart of our faith. Recall that last time we were in uh, Psalm 130, and there at the beginning, the psalmist cried out to God from the depths. This is a Hebrew phrase used throughout the Old Testament to refer to and describe the corruption of creation, the deep-seated brokenness that plagues our existence and creates diseases like the ones we prayed about today and the devastating chaos fostered by what scripture describes as the powers and principalities which wage war against God and his kingdom. If we're honest, we're not really accustomed to talking about evil and sin in these kinds of radical and supernatural terms and yet that is precisely how scripture goes about doing so. And recall that the world or the Greek word cosmos meaning the universe, not just our planet is described in the Bible as the handiwork of God and the object of his love. It's also, though, used to describe the evil regime led by these powers that has taken up residence in our once-beautiful creation. When God appears in this world as Jesus, he's described in the Bible as a stranger who was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world knew him not. Be of good cheer, Jesus tells his disciples. I have overcome the world. This world that Jesus is talking about does not welcome the creator or his people because it has been so saturated with these hostile supernatural powers coordinated by the devil himself. John's gospel refers to the devil as the prince of this world for that reason. And Paul describes him even more shockingly as the god of this world. This enemy and these powers form an empire of cruelty, aggression, envy, misery, violence, falsehood, greed, ignorance, and spiritual desolation. This is the empire that uses deception, temptation, and our everyday experiences to shape our imaginations and affections away from God. They bring chaos down like rain, they sow injustice like seeds, and they infect all of us with greed, fear, and selfishness. And while these powers cannot separate us from God's love, they contend against God's followers all the same. They will remain a terrible enemy until the end when God defeats death as the last enemy to be destroyed. It is the present evil world to which Paul says we must never be conformed and against which we stand as more than conquerors. So by discerning that cosmic reality, we can begin to do two things, recalibrate our laments and recalibrate our hearts. By recalibrating our laments, we focus them on the real battle, which is not against flesh and blood, against other people, but against powers so that we can recognize how sin has corrupted all of creation and not just our personal relationship with God. When we grasp this reality, we're freed up to examine ourselves and our motivations with greater tenacity. We can begin to recognize just how deeply seated and insidious some of these dark influences are in our lives and how they've led us away from God. We can then also begin to recalibrate our hearts and remind ourselves that God is not the architect of all this corruption— He is, in fact, working to defeat that regime by redeeming the world and unleashing his people, you and I, to live in a different way. These two recalibrations to our laments and to our hearts teach us as citizens of God's kingdom to participate in this supernatural conflict by rejecting the deceptions of the enemy and embracing acts of what the Bible calls shalom or peace, acts of confession, repentance, generosity, hospitality, reconciliation, and other creative and costly means of disadvantaging ourselves to advantage others and our neighbors. We can begin to abide like a tree planted in streams of living water in a radically different kingdom than the one that plagues this world, one where the first are last, the poor are blessed, and the meek inherit the earth. And we advance this kingdom and defy the powers when we walk the extra mile, turn the other cheek, and bless those who persecute us. We associate with the lowly. We abstain from vengeance and we overcome evil, not with evil, but with good. We stand in solidarity with the marginalized. We choose peace when threatened by the sword, blessings when cursed, and love towards anyone we might ever consider our enemy. We don't demand our rights at the expense of our neighbor's welfare. We willingly relinquish them, emptying ourselves in the likeness of our savior, descending rather than elevating ourselves, finding our lives by losing them. And Jesus, the king of this kingdom, is the one that we imitate as his people. He who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, who washed his betrayer's feet, who pled for the forgiveness of his own murderers, who gave up his life willingly and healed us by his wounds. Jesus' death made a mockery of Satan and the powers. And one day he's going to return to make all things new. This is why we lament, family, to confront the powers with the peace of Christ. So that is a a recap of the what and why of lament. And and now I really want to focus on the how. If lament is supposed to be able to help us unlock this ability to better live out the kingdom of God, then we really need to learn how to lament. And that leads to the heart of today's passage. The Lament Psalms range so widely, so I'm going to try to take a very broad approach, looking to identify some guideposts that can direct and construct our laments, while still focusing primarily on Psalm 88. I welcome you to turn there now if you haven't already, uh, but the passage will also be up on the screen. And as the passage comes up, to be candid with you, I am anxious about teaching this psalm. Uh, It is the only passage in the entire Old Testament where the Hebrew phrase, I am hopeless, Is uttered. And it's the only lament psalm that ends without a high note. And yet, if you only remember one takeaway from the sermon, please let it be this. It is far more dangerous for God's people to ignore our grief and the transforming work God can do through it than it is to confront, engage, and draw out our griefs through deep and honest lament to God. And that's what we see in Psalm 88 today. So let's read this passage together, allowing the psalmist's heavy language to sit on our shoulders, invade our imaginations, and pull at our hearts. Starting in verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? (sighs) Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are you wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Did I mention that this passage is a little heavy? (laughs) And yet, family, I believe it is also so much more than a heavy dose of sour medicine. I believe this psalm is a gem, burning like a warm hearth, full of holy fire, prepared by God to refine our souls. It contains a four-step pattern that others and I have seen throughout the Lament Psalms. First, a prayer, second, a complaint, third, a request, and yes, even a statement of trust. And I think that this pattern is helpful. It's a straightforward framework for us to consider as we cultivate the discipline of lament in our own lives. So I want to briefly examine each of these steps, which I think serve as kind of theological guideposts or checkpoints to our lament, and look at each of the four steps through both Psalm 88 and, and another complimentary Lament Psalm. And as we progress, we will actually conclude each step by practicing it uh, all along the way. So let's start now with that first step, the step of persistent prayer. We see this in Psalm 88 and Psalm 77. When I cry out in your presence, the psalmist says in Psalm 88, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. Every day I call on you, he says. This emphasis on prayer and calling out to God is common all throughout the psalms, specifically the lament psalms. And the author in Psalm 88 is sharing an urgent demand, using words like cry and call repeatedly. He expects God to answer this urgent outpouring, trusting that if Yahweh would just answer, all would be put to rest. But yet we also see this same dynamic in Psalm 77, another lament psalm. There the psalmist drives himself deeper into the presence of God, demanding his father's attention like a toddler who's been injured. I cry aloud to God, and he will hear me, the psalmist declares. And all throughout Psalm 77, we see a writer resolved to speak to his God and to bring his pain before him. And in both Psalms, the very first act in the lament is this outcry for God's attention. So let me ask you, who taught you how to cry? Of course, the answer is nobody. As the Atenoffs and the Hogels and many of the other new moms and dads are especially aware of these days, and as the Munukawas soon will be, uh, once a child takes its first breath, that child welcomes the world with a very loud cry. A cry that really hits us in the gut. Every single one of us, from me to my son, uh, share this same story. Our lives began with tears. It's become a part of what it means to be human in this broken world. To, to cry is to be human. But lament is not quite like that. We aren't born lamenting. Christian lament, the kind that is honest, biblical, and redemptive, it's not natural to us. To cry out like the psalmists are doing here, to pray in our pain, to get quite messy with our words and tears before a holy God, it takes a vulnerability, faith, and a whole lot of persistence. I think if we're honest, though, many of us fear lament for this reason. We find it Far too honest, too open, and too risky. We fear that we won't get hurt, and when we give in to those lies, I think we risk succumbing to something much worse than those fears, and that's silent despair. Despair is what lives under the hopeless resignation that God does not care, does not hear, and will never restore what is so desperately broken in and around us. People who believe this stop praying. They just give up. Russell Moore, uh, a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, shared a story that captures the danger of this silent despair. He describes visiting an orphanage in Russia while his family pursued adoption, and the silence from the orphanage's nursery was eerie. The the babies in their cribs never cried, not because they didn't need anything, but because they'd learned through neglect that nobody was going to answer them. And yet shortly after Moore and his family completed their adoption and left with their two little boys in their arms, one of the boys began to scream. Uh, The other soon followed after, and Moore explained, little Maxim's scream changed everything for me. More, I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was that moment in his recognizing that he would be heard that he went from being an orphan to a son. Moore's experience provides us, I think, with a profound insight. Just as kids who are confident of their caregiver's love will cry out, so too will a Christian lament their woes to a God they love, a heavenly Father they have embraced as one adopted into the family of God. And yet, I wonder how many of us are holding on to a silent despair instead of persisting in prayer. How much have, or how many of us have become quiet in the face of silence? How many of us have found ourselves in a dry wilderness, spiritually dehydrated by our unanswered prayers? Maybe you've given God a defiant silent treatment in response, or maybe you just don't know what to say. Maybe there is a particular hardship or struggle that you just do not want to talk to God about right now. I hope that you will be encouraged by these Lament Psalms to have the courage to start praying again, to start crying out again. And for those of you who are around friends that pray in ways that make you uncomfortable, slow your roll. Don't be so eager to jump in, correct, hush, fix. Remember that your friend is praying that they are in that holy moment exhibiting a kind of trust in their father. Family, as we mine the riches of Christian lament this morning, just recognize that as you begin to unleash heartfelt cries to our father, especially if you haven't done this in a long time, they're going to be brief and messy and unpolished. They may feel forced and uncomfortable, but keep talking to God. Don't allow your fears, despairs, shame, or doubts to silence you. Your pain can be a path to deeper intimacy with God. And by being persistent, we can learn together how to vocalize those fears and despairs and shames and doubts in our prayers. We can refuse to stuff those hardships into the recesses of our souls. Lament opens the door and shows us a path towards restoration with our Heavenly Father. We just have to walk through it. Nobody taught us how to cry. Tears are part of what it means to be a human, at least until Jesus returns to wipe them all away. But to lament, that is a deeply Christian activity. It's a prayer of faith for the journey between a hard life and God's goodness. We don't just awaken to it, though. We have to learn it. We have to cultivate it. We have to harness it. And we do that by turning to God in persistent prayer. But before we continue, please just take a moment for yourself and cry out to your Heavenly Father and lament. You can do this at home. Uh, you can put something in the chat if you would like. But try to just focus on this, this cry. Um, and after I've given us just a few moments, I'll offer a cry of my own. And uh, it will be focused specifically on the sin of racism. And uh, you are welcome to join me in a form of corporate lament. So let's just take a, a moment to do that. Again, please uh, feel, feel free to join me as I offer my own cry. Father, my soul cries out to you. I am overcome with grief. When I consider the racial oppression that your people have waged against their own brothers and sisters, neighbors and friends, my soul longs for your presence. When I reflect on the ways that your people, your people have become captive to the comfort of our Cultural situation and the power of our politics, I am prone to weep. What can be done, O God? The anguish, the pain, the sorrow is beyond my words. Intercede for me, Holy Spirit. Don't allow me to recoil from this pain. Guide me into embracing it. Walk with me, King Jesus, and teach me how to empty myself. Family, that's that's the first step, is this persistent prayer, and now we're going to step into a second step, um, the complaint, or what I refer to as a courageous complaint, which we see in Psalm 88 uh, and Psalm 10. For me, Christmas 2014 was very difficult. Two months earlier, my youth pastor and mentor, Dane Burke, uh, the youth pastor I mentioned in my last sermon, succumbed to a years-long battle with cancer, leaving his wife to parent family of grieving children. And just weeks earlier, in December, I had attended the funeral service for a young man named Chris, one of my students at Central High School. Chris was a leader, bright, athletic, really funny. Uh, He was on academic scholarship at Michigan State, and he even managed to walk onto the football team as a freshman. Uh, But that all changed in late November when he was killed in a tragic car accident um, where nobody was at fault and and ice was the cause. And then on Christmas Day, Laura and I grieved the loss of one of Laura's bridesmaids, Rebecca. Rebecca was a kind and humble spirit, Um, one of Laura's nursing classmates and one of her closest friends and a truly loving person. And so in the span of about two weeks, unfortunately, she went from being perfectly healthy to incurably sick puzzling the doctors tending to her. She died a painful death that seemed like it was over before we could even begin to process the fact that she was sick. And so the day after uh, Rebecca's death, and while reflecting on the deaths of Dean and Chris, I I wrote this uh, publicly. I said, if grieving is a process, then I have arrived at the angry stage. No doubt, I'm grateful Grateful for each of these friends, their legacies, their character. Grateful for our shared memories, our inside jokes, our adventures. Um, Grateful that we are promised one day that all of our mourning will be transformed into gladness by our King. And that our tears will be wiped away. But I am also angry. So very angry. Angry over the loss of their lives. Angry at incurable diseases and split-second accidents. Angry over careers, marriages, families, and grandchildren that never got their chance. Angry over friendships that had just started to blossom. Angry at stories that curtain moments after the first act. Angry at a broken world consumed by tragedies like these. Angry at the evil forces sowing death and chaos all around us. And angry at how little any of us can do to change any of it. Angry at how quickly we forget and just move on. Angry at what feels like the absence of hope. Angry for highlighting my own anger when others bear the real blo- loss. Just plain angry. Back then, I concluded with a quote from Psalm 88 Do you work wonders for the dead? Speaking to God, the departed rise up to praise you. As you can tell, uh, it still hurts remembering what that day was like. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do we say in these kinds of moments? How do we come up for air when we have been consumed and disoriented by a tidal wave of grief? Maybe my words weren't the most holy. Maybe uh, they weren't the most hopeful. But what they were was a complaint And I think if we're going to take an honest look at how to lament, we have to learn how to complain. Wait a minute. (laughs) I'm sure some of you are saying, complain? Uh, I'm sure some of us are starting to get uneasy because we don't like complainers. And isn't complaining pretty much always the wrong response? No. Not not if we read the lament psalms over and over. I think if we do, we'll see a whole lot of creative and compelling complaints. There are... Uh, Why complaints? My God, why have you forsaken me? The speaker demands in Psalm 22. Awaken, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? O Lord, the speaker weeps in Psalm 80, why do you cast my soul away? There are also how questions and complaints. How long, O Lord, demands the speaker in Psalm 13. Will you forget me forever? O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? And apparently, family, these complaints are not sinful. They were set to music so an entire congregation would sing these complaints together in a coordinated chorus. When we look at Psalm 88 today, it is quite clearly and disproportionately focused on complaining, often in almost a sarcastic form. "'Do you work wonders for the dead?' the psalmist asks. "'And are your wonders known in the darkness?' Similarly, Psalm 10 opens with two especially astonishing complaints. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In this psalm, the speaker is wrestling with God's apparent silence in the face of injustice. Notice how the psalm begins with an appeal to Yahweh, translated Lord here in your Bible. This is the name God uses first to introduce himself to Moses and save the Hebrews from slavery. I am who I am, he says. This is the name God used to make a mockery of Egypt's false gods and part the Red Sea. The psalmist calls upon that name, that imagery of salvation, and then accuses God, the same delivering God, of disinterest. He lays out a detailed complaint against God, highlighting the unpunished arrogance of the wicked against the poor, the ill-gotten gain of the greedy, and the unpunished pride of God's enemies. When we look at all of these Psalms, it's remarkable to me how common those complaints are, especially relative to how uncomfortable we are with complaining. Perhaps we don't understand the value of bringing our complaints to God, but let's be clear, family. The Psalms permit and even encourage us to share our frustrations, including and especially if they're with God himself. The Psalms teach that this kind of complaint is essential to lament. It's where we identify the source of pain, draw attention to the brokenness of the world, and focus on appeals to God's character. After all, we complain because we expect God to be who he says and do what he's promised. That means naming with honesty situations or circumstances that are painful, wrong, unjust, or as one author, I think, beautifully put it, those circumstances that do not align with God's character and therefore just don't make sense within God's kingdom. On the other hand, I think if we refuse to complain, I think... I fear that we'll fall into two related errors anger or denial. Some of us become so filled with built up anger towards God that we end up living in self made prisons of bitterness and rage. Pain gives rise to this fiery rage, and there are often spiritual burn scars on us to show for it. And yet, on the other hand, some of us revert to a kind of stoicism. We try and project steady confidence and contentment. And if we're honest, though, it feels more like denial. Everything is fine, we say. Christians are too blessed to be stressed or depressed, as uh, people at my college like to say, even though we know that that's not true. Whether we're in, in either of these two places, anger, denial, we often desperately need Christian community to coach us off the cliff of our anger or coax us out of our caves of hiding. We can't stuff down our frustrations and be consumed by anger and denial. That's why we have to instead bring our complaints to the Father. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that scripture grants us some kind of blank check to just vent self-centered rage at God every time life doesn't turn out like we planned. And I'm also not suggesting that we have a right to be angry with God. And I, I certainly want to caution you against getting stuck in this step, as some of us are prone to do. We're not meant to linger in complaint forever. But I do think that the Psalms are teaching us about a place for a kind of complaining that is biblical and deeply courageous. Frankly, without a complaint, there isn't really a lament, and there is no basis for making a demand of God, which is the next step. Again, though, before we move on to this third step, just consider this idea of a courageous complaint and take a moment to offer your own to your Heavenly Father. Again, you're welcome to put this in the chat or just pray silently on your own, uh, and after a few moments, I will offer mine. Again, family, you are um, welcome to join me in this. Again, this uh, part of my lament will be focused on racism. Enough is enough. How long, O Lord, how long will you leave us, your bride and first love, stumbling around in the darkness, blinded by our own sin and selfishness? Our minds are dark, cavernous, lacking your light. They're not renewed as they should be. We are taken in by cultural patterns and myths that ignore or deny the painful stories of brothers and sisters, neighbors and friends. We choose vengeance over peace, conflict over reconciliation, anger over empathy. We refuse to acknowledge the deeply seated idolatries that shape our hearts in insidious ways, fostering greed, selfishness, envy, oppression, and racism. If we have run out of energy to even believe that these things can change, how can you expect us to keep working for it? How long will we be forced to only hear of your goodness while we see the world's evils, particularly the evils of racial pride, socioeconomic injustice, and ethnic division? How long will these reasons to despair surround us? Where are you, God? You prayed for our unity, you gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You promised us power and peace. So we're asking, help us, Heavenly Father. Cure us of our blindness. Open our eyes to see the glories of redemption and confession, Lord. Lead us in the pathway of righteousness. Give us reason to hope again. That's the second step, family, this courageous complaint. And that leads us to the third step in lament where we are taught by the Lament Psalms to call on God with a confidence deeply rooted in his character. Throughout the Psalms, the writers are equally as bold as they are angry or discouraged. They call upon God with such authority that sometimes it seems like they think they can command God to do what they want him to do. Their confidence in God's character and their knowledge of his past deliverance compels them to make bold requests. The writers of Lament stake their faith their claims on what God has promised to do. Notice here in Psalm 88, let my prayer come before you, the psalmist demands. The psalmist is facing death all around him, death his whole life, and yet he hears nothing but silence from God. And so he's compelled to make demands of God. Incline your ear and hear my cry, he says. And notice that we see the same sort of intensity in Psalm 22. Be not far from me, David writes, for my trouble is near. Both of these speakers are imploring God to be close, to come quickly to their aid, to deliver them, to save their souls, and to rescue them from danger. Each request builds on the one before, calling upon God to act in a way that fulfills his promises and amplifies his holiness. So what do we ask for? What what kind of things do we demand of God? Drawing from the Lament Psalms, Pastor Mark Rogop, outlines a helpful list of nine examples that I'd like to share with you all this morning. First, we see uh, demands to rise up. In the Lament Psalms, we see the speaker demand that God arise or, or rise up. And these laments plead with God to do the work of fixing what is broken in the world. Arise, O Lord, declares Psalm 10. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. We also see demands to deliver us. We see in the Lament Psalms uh, this deliverance demand. Grant us help against the foe. With God we shall do valiantly, the psalmist says. By asking for God to save us, we are not only marshaling the resources of an omnipotent God, we are reminding ourselves that God can be trusted. Third, we seek uh, calls to remember. When the Bible calls God to remember, it isn't as if he has forgotten anything, it is a way of asking God to be true to his promises. Remember your mercy, O Lord, the psalmist says, and your steadfast love, for they have been true from old. Have mercy on us. This is another demand that we see. When the situation behind our lament is directly connected to our sin, we see the lament psalmist pleading with God to not remember their sins, to not be treated as they deserve. These pleas for mercy are also common in the book of Lamentations. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We also see the demand to listen to me. Uh, In the face of what can feel like deafening silence, like we see in Psalm 88, we also see the lament psalmist reaching out to the Lord, blindly lunging for his presence. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. We also see the demand, teach me. Pain can be a wake-up call, a unique opportunity for us to humble ourselves and learn. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God, the speaker says in Psalm 143. Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Vindicate me, this is another demand that we see. One of the most personal requests in the Lament Psalms relates to this desire for defense. These come in response to false accusations, misunderstanding, and unfair treatment. And rather than sliding into bitterness or succumbing to the temptation to counterpunch, the Lament Psalms teach us to ask God for vindication. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication and my cause, my God and Lord. Let justice be done. This is another demand. By making God's glory the partner to your pain, it is appropriate to demand justice. Lament gives us the language for talking to God about unfairness, abuse, oppression, and allowing us to boldly call on him to act for the sake of justice. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, the psalmist says. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone are the most high. And then restore us. This is another demand. Many lament psalms feature this request for God to bring restoration to his people. This is consistent with the narrative of the gospel, which culminates in Jesus returning to and restoring his creation, bringing forth a new heavens and new earth. Restore us, O God, says Psalm 80. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Family, as you look at that list on the screen, I pray that it would be an encouragement to you. Consider using this as a guide to your own demands, to shape them. Lament gives us an expansive prayer language with which we can speak to God. It's the language of our Savior, a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, as we said before. This man of sorrows, he meets us in our pain. He invites us to keep asking him with bold confidence, reminding us that he is ready to give us good gifts. These demands and God's response can cultivate a deeper hope in God to care for and love us. But before we move on to that final feature of lament, which is a statement or declaration of trust, please take a moment to offer a bold demand of your own. Once again, I'll offer mine here after we've had some time of quiet, and you're welcome to join me. So again, take a moment to do that and consider offering it in the chat as well. please uh, feel free to join me. Father, King, your people continue to build up the wall of racial hostility that you tore down when your kingdom invaded this world of brokenness. Look upon your church. See how we are plagued by apathy and hostility. See how we are quick to justify and rationalize, slow to weep with those who mourn. Move among us, O Lord, like a mighty rushing wind. Tear down that dividing wall of racial hostility that I and so many of us have continued to rebuild brick by brick. Exchange our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. Teach us all to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slower to anger. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, turn our apathy into empathy and our hostilities into unity. And this leads us to the last step uh, in lament, which is declarations of trust. We see this in Psalm 88, to an extent, uh, and Psalm 13. All true songs of worship are born in the wilderness of suffering, says Michael Card, songwriter and author. As Card notes in his book, without the pain and suffering that David endured, we would not have in our hands today many of the Davidic Psalms that we cherish. The Lord is my shepherd, David declares, And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a psalm many of us have memorized. This theme of pain refining our faith is true throughout the story of Christianity. Horatio Spafford penned the famous hymn, It is well with my soul, after losing all of his daughters in a tragic seafaring accident. When sorrows like sea billows roll, he wrote, whatever my lot... Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. And of course, think of all the powerful hymns from the African American spirituals. There is a bomb in Gilead, they say, to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin sick soul. Now, I want to be clear the encouragement from these songs today do not justify the pain, loss, suffering, and slavery that informed these songs. No, not at all. But the testimony of God's people is this. If we allow him, God can cultivate trust and undeniable good out from the midst of our worst pains. This is going to be a critical juncture in the sermon. Here, having cried out to God, having made our case to him, having demanded that he listen and act, you and I now have a choice to make in our lament. We now have to choose to move beyond each step, to not linger indefinitely in our cries or complaints or demands. We have the opportunity now to choose to trust. The language we've used so far has guided us to this point, to a kind of spiritual safe harbor where we can choose to have confidence in God. Notice in Psalm 13, the complementary psalm to this step, that David opens his lament with four different harsh how-long statements. Notice how he demands deliverance. Answer me, O Lord, he says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. But then notice how he pivots to a series of trust statements. But, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. He does it again in verses 12 to 14. I've been forgotten like one who is dead, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. David uses this elsewhere in other Psalms that he's written. For my enemies say, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. "O oh God," he says, insolent men have risen up against me, but you, O oh Lord, are a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in love." Now, as some of you probably noticed, this is what is kind of peculiar about Psalm 88, and what distinguishes it from basically every other lament psalm, because the psalmist's prayers are, are never answered. Even when he voices an urgent need, expresses a deep, lifelong crisis, and gives a passionate address to his God, the prayer is unanswered. Yahweh never speaks, and the psalmist receives no signal of engagement or concern, just silence. And so the psalmist concludes with a dark line. Darkness is my closest friend. Clearly a jab at God who he's pleading for, uh, pleading for his presence. But I want to encourage you that's not really the end of this story though it looks that way. If you take a look at for a moment at the name of the author, uh, his name is Heman the Ezraite. Uh, Tim Keller points this out in his own message on Psalm 88 that we know from the Old Testament that Heman was a leader of musicians and poets that produced several of the Psalms in our Bible today. That means despite this dark Psalm and the apparent silence of God, Heman like so many other God followers before and after him, refused to allow his grief to silence his praises to God and instead used that grief to shape his work. And today, that work has been used to encourage you and me and many other of God's people for over 2,000 years. Do you think Heman could have imagined that when he was lamenting in this psalm? Do you think Horatio Spafford could have when he wrote, it is well with my soul? Do you think our African brothers and sisters suffering in slavery could have ever known the legacy their songs and spirituals would leave behind? And yet, because they persevered through the darkness, because they trusted in God, the light shone through and the darkness did not overcome them. As Christians, we will encounter the silence of God. It is inevitable. And when we ponder that divine silence, we have to remember the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus. There is no doubt, as the gospel shows us, that on the last day, God the Father's of Jesus' deepest need and abandonment, a need that was expressed by Jesus quoting a lament psalm, Psalm 22. God the Father does not answer, Jesus cries. He is silent. He's absent to Jesus too. Abba, Father, Jesus laments, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' death occurs in the context of divine abandonment, a ripping and tearing at the heart of the Trinity, a moment of self-emptying that has been understood by the church for thousands of years as the critical moment of confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of death. And in that moment, the silence of God evoked from Jesus what it can also draw from us, a powerful blend of patient waiting and impatient demand and an act of honesty and trust that defies the powers tempting us to deny our good God. It's hard, family, but when we choose to trust, when we choose to believe what we know to be true, even though the facts and experience of suffering all around us call that belief into question, when we choose to remember the testimonies of God's handiwork in our lives, when we revisit all of the Ebenezer's that we've built as monuments to God's faithfulness in our lives, we honor God. Lament helps us do all of this. It, it keeps us turning towards trust. It gives us language to walk through the wilderness and emerge from that valley of the shadow of death. And when we do that, when we embrace our father in moments of despair, we defy the enemy and the powers that wage war against him. Some days our statements of trust are going to sound like confident declarations, but other times we may just need to crack open our Bibles and force ourselves to rehearse basic truths about God, the ones we find at the end of many lament psalms. But no matter what we do, we must never stop making the pivot we see here in the Lament Psalms, the pivot we see in Jesus' own abandonment. We must continue to lean in and trust. This is how we learn to live life between a hard life and God's promises, how we learn to sing and worship when suffering comes our way. So now, having learned this fourth step in the journey of lament, please consider offering your own declaration of trust. Again, in the chat or on your own. And as before, I will Take a few moments to be quiet and then offer mine here, and you're welcome to join me. God, Father, King. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We are so desperately in need of you as is this world. And yet we trust you. We're confident. Confident that the good work you've begun in us will one day become complete. Confident that you will conform us into the image of your son. Trusting that you can make what is impossible for the world possible for us. Be our salt and light, Lord. Purify us. Reveal the truth to us. Dispel the darkness from us so that we too might look like your reconciled people marked by peace and justice. Fueled by hope in a resurrected Savior. Known for our love and unity. May this be true even as you are true. We trust you to do it. Amen. So family... That's the four-step process for lament that I want to leave with you and and encourage you with. Just sharing personally through this series, I have become convinced that Christian lament is powerful and unnerving and essential to our own faith walk. It's how we can begin to reckon with the brokenness, not only in the world, but in our community and in ourselves. It's the critical first step before rushing to take any action. It awakens us to that cosmic conflict all around us and invites us to confront the enemy with the peace of Christ. It deepens our intimacy with the Father, and it is how we till the soil of our souls day after day, weeding the garden of our lives, making room for the life-giving fruit of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that these four steps we've discussed, persistent prayer, courageous complaints, bold demands, and declarations of trust, will be helpful practical guides for you as you cultivate your own lament practices. We certainly have much to lament, again, both within ourselves and in our community. But I want to be clear as we wrap up, lament is not the destination, family. It is the beginning of deep self-reflection that I think in many cases will produce within us an impulse to confess and repent. We know that both of these things, confession and repentance, are good things. They're gifts from God that breathe life into our dry and weary souls. We saw that in Joanne's testimony today. Look, Look at how much good came from her family's eagerness to engage in lament, confession, and repentance. By engaging in lament ourselves, and outlined in the way we've discussed today, I believe we can begin to reckon with our griefs shoulder to shoulder with a Heavenly Father. We can allow the dry wilderness to cultivate worship and thirst for the living water. We can see Jesus suffering alongside us, yes, but we can do more than that. We can begin to unearth and confront the hidden idols That have cluttered our souls. Our minds and hearts can begin to be tuned like an instrument to the harsh clangs of sin and brokenness within and all around us. Our laments can soften our hearts and set us in motion away from our defensive reflexes and towards confession and repentance. And by emptying ourselves in this way, by humbling ourselves, we can start to proclaim the kingdom of God in our community. We can speak it to dry bones and watch as life springs up. Lament is a critical first step to experience these blessings. And given all the brokenness in the world and in ourselves, we have much to lament, much to confess, much to repent of and turn away from. Look within yourself, look around and look beyond this world and see the cosmic forces eager to lead us astray. Be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. And as you do that and as I do that, I pray that we will be led by our laments to the arms of our Savior and King the man of sorrows, I pray that you'll join me on this journey so that we can continue to cultivate this oft forgotten spiritual discipline together. Please pray with me. Lord, Father, we know that you are unchanging and that your love for us is everlasting. Your past faithfulness anticipates your future restoration when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and when death shall be no more. Teach us, O God, how to lament until then. Awaken us to the spiritual conflict that surrounds us and equip us to engage it with peace. Soften our hearts to the pain of others, the pain that we cause and the pain you suffered and suffer still on our behalf. Lead us to humility, to weeping, to complaints, and to hope like a shepherd leads his flock to refreshing streams. Come with power and renew our souls. Keep us moving forward in your work. Step by step, see your church unified. Confront our idolatries and lead us in love. Amen.